Alrighty, here is chapter 3, With the Sun Burning the Dashboard by the Apple PPIE Lifestyle. I wish I knew how to read I mean, like, is it supposed to be the Apple P-Pie Lifestyle? I don't know. The Apple Pie? I'm sorry. Alright. After Marco's impromptu coming out, nothing happens for miles. They lapse back into silence, but not the stiff kind. Marco's revelation had given them a minute or two when they talked like they didn't have years of war and bloodshed behind them. The silence they sit in now is, well, easy to fall short. It's not easy, but it's easier. Rachel, for one, feels less like she's going to burst into a grisly morph if someone brushes her elbow by accident. She tracks the scenery with her eyes. They're out of the city now, speeding along a highway, and Rachel thinks back to something she isn't sure is a memory or a dream. Corn stalks bigger than their car, framing the edges of the road. It must have been before her sisters were born, because she remembers sitting alone in the back seat. She has a hazy image of her parents in the front seats, her mother leaning over to change the radio. Marco? Rachel bl- ah, no, that's not- um, Baco. Rachel blinks out of her daze. From the driver's seat, Marco glances into the rearview mirror. Even though it, it mustn't do much, there's a whole row of seats between Marco and the very back seat where Axe is lying in his natural form. Yeah, Axe man? Do you have a location in mind? Um, Marco says. Rachel looks into the rearview mirror and sees him lick his lips. A little. I have maps and a general plan. Jake says... You don't know where we're going. Did I not just say I had a plan? A general plan, Jake says, but Marco's already waving a hand. We saved the world with a few dozen half-baked plans. Don't underestimate half-baked plans. I know where we're going. It's going to be great. But I'm more focused on the road trip to-do list than whether we're going to swing by Minnesota's largest ball of twine. Kansas, Tobias corrects. Marco rolls his eyes. Kansas, whatever. How did he even know that? Despite herself, Rachel feels a tug at the side of her mouth as she watches him. Out of all of them, she thinks Marco came out of the war with the least amount of scars. She has no doubt that he still wakes up in mid-punch or yell, but he's more assured nowadays, and Rachel doesn't think it's purely because of the testosterone he's been taking since the war ended. He's growing, and not growing inwards or jagged like the rest of them. He's growing into a person who's going to look back on these days and see them as a few dark years rather than the beginning of the end. As for the rest of them, well, Rachel hopes they're doing better than her. She thinks they probably are. Cassie is, definitely. She comes in a hard second in Marco in terms of how good everyone's doing. Jake, well, Jake doesn't know if he's going to prison, so he's still carrying a familiar weight on his shoulders. Axe seems to be doing okay from what Rachel's seen, but he hasn't jetted back home yet, so there's something must be happening there. And Tobias? Rachel clears her throat. You have a to-do list? Yep. Marco pops the pee. Started thinking about it once everyone started, you know, actually agreeing to come. I wrote down most of it when we stopped at that gas station before picking up Bird Boy and Axe. Rachel thinks about saying something like, Thanks for consulting us, Marco. Did you think to ask if we want to do any of what you wrote down? But Cassie cuts in with, Could we see it? Yeah, give me a second. Marco takes a hand off the wheel to rummage around in one of his pockets. 
Apparently it's deep in there because he starts squirming and making awkward movements with his elbow as he digs for it. Chill, he tells Jake. It's an empty road. Get going, Jake glances down at the speedometer. Very fast. Still under the speed limit, Marco says. He makes a triumphant noise as he resurfaces with a scrap of notepaper. He tosses it behind him to Cassie, then replaces his hand on the steering wheel. Rachel hears him tell Jake, You can relax now, I'm at ten and two again, as she bends sideways to see the paper Cassie is smoothing out. As soon as Rachel moves, Cassie shifts the paper so she's holding it close to her. Rachel very pointedly doesn't wonder if it's out of politeness or Cassie just doesn't want to risk touching her. Rachel wouldn't blame her if it's the latter. Behind her, she notices movement and assumes Tobias and Axe are leaning over the seats to read with them. Your handwriting is shit, Rachel says as she squints at the paper. It's titled The Animorphs Teenage To-Do List. I thought this was a road trip to-do list, Tobias says. Tomato, tomato, Marco calls back. Rachel squints some more. Eventually, she deciphers the paper that the paper reads. Underage drinking, breaking into a school swimming pool at night, fireworks on a beach, beach at night, something on a rooftop, picnic, fireworks on a rooftop, going clubbing. Some of them overlap, Marco says from the front seat. He's drumming his fingers on the steering wheel. So we can do a couple at once, like drinking and clubbing. I figured we could morph into adults, you know, obviously of age, like 40 or whatever, so he won't get carded, then demorph him and get in. Rachel thinks about being drunken and morph and getting stuck as a random 40-year-old who would have, then have a perfect doppelganger. She thinks about looking in the mirror to see that for the rest of her life. Sometimes she feels like such a stranger in this body that getting stuck as a stranger wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. I can see eight ways that could go wrong just the top of my head, says Tobias. Rachel pictures him in drunken hawk form and has to bite back a laugh. Since when are, I mean, since when are you so obsessed with swimming at night? Jake asks Marco. What? There's just one about that. Beach and pool? Jake points out. Oh. Marco shifts his shoulders against the car seat. We don't have to swim at the beach. Cassie leans forward to study him. Why at night? Isn't that what us rowdy teenagers get up to? Marco says after a few seconds. You still watch a weird amount of daytime TV, huh? Shut it, bird boy. Marco sighs and it's hardly a sound. It pulls through his teeth. I just... We never got anything normal like normal life after we got put our hands in that blue fucking box. After everything was panic and fear and pain and, you know, screaming nightmares. I thought we could do with some rest and relaxation that didn't evolve stressing about the apocalypse, okay? Silence falls over the car. Rachel watches the landscape outside the window smear into something unrecognizable. If she'd stayed home, she would be buried under a mountain of blankets, sweating and watching reruns. Sometimes, more often lately, Rachel tries to imagine what her life would have been if the Yerks never came. She would be... God, she doesn't know. Maybe she would have taken her dad up on that old offer to move with him and become an actual gymnast rather than an amateur. Maybe she'd be thinking about college by now. She'd definitely still be in high school. She'd go shopping on weekends and going to parties at night, maybe. She'd toy with boys and hang out with Cassie and experiment with clothes, with her hair. She'd never wake up mid-morph and scare the shit out of her little sisters.
Tobias. She and Tobias would have never bonded through battle and terror, but maybe in this world they could have lumped together on a group project or something. They could go to the movies, and he wouldn't have to go to the bathroom halfway through to demorph. Rachel rests her head against the window and closes her eyes. She doesn't have scars, but she has the memory of a hundred wounds. This other Rachel, her worst memory of pain would be from breaking her arm at age nine. She would study for assignments and paint her nails without thinking it was pointless. It all feels pointless, imagining what she could have been, the teenage experience she could have had, the one Marco is trying to scrape together for him, them. A road trip with a bunch of friends and the road out ahead of them. The list would be a bunch of things they've done before, things they do just for fun instead of a fun and desperate attempt at normal teenagehood. Fair enough, Marco. She doesn't say it. No one does. Eventually, Marco turns on the radio, and the tinny music of Fleetwood Mac lets Rachel tune out her thoughts. Something Marco hasn't factored into this whole road trip thing, or something he had, but when he pictured it in his mind, it was strangely absent, was how much fucking driving he'd have to do. He'd gotten so swept up in the image of them all sitting on a beach, stargazing or whatever, that he glossed over how much time he'd have to spend in the driver's seat. He looks out at the horizon. There hasn't been another car in sight for hours. Hey, he says. Anyone want to take a swing at driving? No, Jake says instantly in a tone that suggests everyone else should follow suit. Marco looks in the rearview mirror. Most of them look just as dubious, apart from maybe Rachel, who... Okay, he doesn't really want her behind the wheel right now. Come on! We won't be able to do this once we get close to civilization. The gap's closing. Any takers? None of us know how to drive, Jake says, which means you're going to be the one teaching us. And from what driving skills you've shown us, I'm 100% confident we'd end up in a ditch. Marco stares at him. I'm hurt, Jake. Really hurt. My driving. Watch the road, Jake says, eyes glued to it. Marco rolls his eyes but does. Anybody? Maybe in an empty parking lot later, Cassie suggests. My parents took me out to do that a few months back. How was that? Tobias asks. Cassie shrugs. I was okay. I dinged the back of the car a bit, though. It happens, Marco nods. He thinks about telling them how he crashed into his dad's mailbox on his first try driving up the driveway, then thinks better of it. So, no one? A pause. Then, from the very back, I would like a try, if everyone's comfortable with it. Marco's whooping laugh is undercut by everyone else making noises of varying confidence. Axeman, I would be honored if you took the wheel. Marco starts to pull over, and as he does, Jake starts saying, No, wait. We're not. Seriously. He's gonna morph human first. Chill. I wouldn't just let a guy with four legs and hooves into the driver's seat. Jake stares at him. No, that would be irresponsible. Marco says, Hey, Axe, do they have cars on your planet? Of a sort. Yeah? Marco settles into the car at the side of the road and shuts off the engine. What do they look like? Better than this, Axe says, and Marco laughs again. Okay, this is happening, Tobias says, and hops up to the next to Cassie's head as Axe starts to morph human. Marco gets out of the car and gets Jake to do the same. I can't instruct from the back seat, my man. And goes to open the door to the back seat. When he does, Axe's eye stalks are slooping into a head of what is turning rapidly to curly brown hair. 
Marco waits, and in seconds, Axe blinks up at him in a form that Marco probably privately calls other Axe. He knows it's just another morph, but to, but to Marco and everyone else, he thinks he's almost Axe, certain Axe does too. It feels like another version of Axe. Axe shuffles out from the back seat. Marco hands over the outwards. Oh, Marco's hands hover outwards in preparation, but Axe barely even wobbles as he sets his two feet down in the dry grass. He then proceeds not to wobble all the way to the front seat, nodding towards Jake as he passes him. Chill, Marco says as Jake climbs into the back seat where Axe was. It'll be turtle slow. Uh-huh, Jake replies, but he looks more anxious than grudging, so Marco takes it as a win. Cassie taps on the window as Marco passes. He stops and waits as she rolls down the window and says, Turtles are the ones with the flippers. From beside her, Marco thinks he hears Rachel make a noise that sounds too much like a scoff. He can't tell if it's fond or not. Cassie either doesn't notice or pretends not to. Marco says, slow as, as tortoises then. Axe, how are we doing? I am good. Good da. Comes the voice from the front seat. There's a bleed of the horn and a low, ah. Marco snorts as he walks around the car to, to the passenger seat. Aren't you supposed to be the tech genius? He asks as he climbs into the seat and straps his seatbelt on. I am, Axe says distractedly. He's looking over the car, buttons and levers and all. This should be easy. These vehicles do not even have a... The... Great. Marco then leans back in his seat. Take us away, then. There's a noise, and Marco looks back to see Jake leaning as far forwards as his seatbelt will allow him. You said, I'm teaching. He's learning by doing. Axe, you know the basics, yeah? You saw how I... Axe twists the key into the ignition, and the car rumbles to life. There we go, Marco says. Okay, now, changing out of neutral. Axe has already done it. He looks expectantly at Marco. Then I push this down, correct? He says, and push it, puts his hand on the handbrake. Um, yeah, oh, you gotta push that in as you... Yeah, yeah, Marco says. You got it. Okay, so, pedals. The car lurches forward, then comes to a stop. Everyone jerks against their seat belts. Marco clears his throat. So, maybe should someone should grab onto Tobias. Cassie's already on it, Rachel says. Marco glances back and sees that Cassie has, in fact, taken Tobias into her arms and is holding her, him secure against her chest. Great. Okay. Marco turns back. Axe. I believe I have got this, Axe says. The, the car moves forwards again, more smoothly this time. Marco sits on his hands so he doesn't clutch at his seatbelt, but the car rolls back onto the road and stays on the correct side, never drifting over, and the speed stays consistently slow-ish. It feels ludicrously slow after going so fast earlier, but when, but when Marco looks at the speedometer, he realizes that they'd be breaking the speed limit if they were driving in a city right now. Okay, Marco says, voice light. Going pretty good, Axe man. Thank you. Axe says, his hands are perfectly at ten and two. In my defense, it is a remarkably simple. After experiencing technology on my home planet, he elaborates, I'm sure for humans this is more difficult, with you ooh, being used to such primitive technology. Ology. Marco bites his lip again and against a grin. He's missed this damn alien and his not-quite-compliments. He's so earnest about them. 
Axe glances around him again and takes a hand off the wheel to touch the long switch that will turn on the windshield wipers. Oh, he says when he pushes it hard enough to turn them on to the lowest setting. I wondered about that. He flicks it further and the windshield wipers speed up, screeching quietly against the dry glass. Marco clears his throat. Not that I'm not loving the show, but that's actually bad for the... Sorry, Axe says and turns it off. An anxious silence that Marco thinks is only anxious for some of them falls. Road trips, apparently, are full of silences that have raging levels of comfortable. <laughs> After a minute into Axe driving, Marco is pretty sure Axe is already better than him, but they're driving along a straight country road, so that's pretty easy anyway. Tobias says, Ox, yes. Would alcohol affect you, or do we need to feed you chocolate to get you drunk? Marco grins. Spock reference. Nice. Alcohol would affect me, Axe replies, though we have different kinds on my planet. Yeah? What kinds? Axe pauses. The most popular kind is, is that drunk on my planet, among polite society at least, is, I think, close to what is called tequila on Earth. Oh, good. Oh, I mean, oh, God. Just... Rachel says, just as Cassie says, ah. In the very back seat, Jake just makes a noise that is too breathy to be a laugh. Polite society, huh, Tobias says. Yes. Marco grins at the robe. What do people from unpolite society drink, then? It is unlike any alcohol you would recognize. Axe says, it is also in solid form. Marco nods, still grinning. So you guys, you just walk over to pools of stuff, depending on if you're well off or not, and just get wasted? Does wasted mean intoxicated? Yeah. Then yes. Marco imagines it, Andalite traipsing through a pool of amber liquid, movements gradually becoming more and more sloppy. That is the best thing I've ever heard. Tobias, you are a god for bringing it up. You're welcome. Axe finds he quite, like dri he quite likes driving. It's oddly soothing, despite the knowledge that the contraption he's in his control of is laughably primitive and they would most likely die if he crashed right now. Car crashes kill an astounding amount of people on Earth. Axe remembers reading of that and pitying them for being so early in their technology. This was back when he still pitied them, or back when he didn't feel guilty about pitying them. Nowadays, he knows that even though humans are in are early in terms of technology. They are developing it very fast, and even if they weren't, they are surprisingly resilient. Pride is the main emotion Axe feels for humanity as a species. There's still a thread of pretty, pity and some disgust and anger when he turns on the news, but it's to be expected. In his hearts, he feels the same emotions for different pe reasons about his own people. Not that he'd ever speak of it. Sometimes, though, more since Earth is safe, Axe will sit somewhere, a roof, a bus, a bus stop bench, and look out over this place these humans have made. It is not particularly stupendous, but Axe will be become a wash with emotion all the same, a slow but thing that builds in crests. He will eye a flower poking it from a crack in the sidewalk, peeling posters on billboards, a woman speaking into a large cell phone, and he will feel an immense fondness, even if it's sometimes bitter, for this, for this planet and their inhabitants, for this world he helps save. So, it is not his world. It is a place where he has lived, and still lives, and he feels more strongly for it than he's ever thought he would when he was in his ship sinking into the bottom of the ocean. 
Axe drum. Axe drums his fingers on the steering wheel like he's seen Marco do, as well as people on TV. He likes the motion. It seems carefree. Rhyme. Axe has seen Marco do the same finger movement on his jeans or a desk when he's bored or nervous, but there's something about the movement on the steering wheel with the windshield overlooking the scenery to the front of the car. Axe watches the street pass underneath them. Up ahead, there's a horizon and the sky. The moon is visible, which it is sometimes is during the day. This has surprised him at first. It still unnerves him, even years later. So does the sun, in a more distant way. There's a single sun instead of the two on Axe's home planet, and it's duller than either of them. Everything on Axe's planet had been in near-constant st state of brightness. The plants, the structures, the mountains had all glowed with the light cast on them. The closest thing Earth has to that occurs in the hot depths of its summers, which is still pale in comparison. Winter had been a shock, to say the least, all dull tones and muted colors, the gray sledge of sleet and rain. Autumn had been colorful at least, but rarely bright. Axe looks forward to the summer every year. Axe glances beside him. Marco's leaning back into the seat with his arms crossed over his chest, his eyes closed. His eyelashes are a dark sweep against his cheeks, and Axe finds himself looking at them for longer than he meant to. As he tears his gaze away, he notices that the hair on Marco's chin has darkened. Axe feels himself smile, which is always something to get used to. His mouth is odd to operate at will, let alone against it. Marco has sounded so happy when he described what would change when he started testosterone, and Axe is happy in turn to see the effects on him. He hopes Marco feels right, as he had said back then, just after the war ended. He looks into the rearview mirror. Behind him is the rest of his team, the, team, the humid children who banded together and managed to hold off on the Yerks the, for years. He remembers thinking that it was impossible when they had introduced themselves and their cause to him. He remembers thinking this many times after and then doing his best to block the thoughts out. Axe looks at them. Cassie's reading something from what she called the glove compartment. He thinks it's a pamphlet. Rachel is leaning against the window with her eyes closed, her, her fingers knotted together in her lap. Tobias is perched atop the car seat next to her, a careful distance away, and then in the back seat, Jake is staring out the window at nothing in particular. There's a word for it in Axe's world, which is hard to pronounce with teeth and tongue, that describes the state that follows survival mode, when you can finally let yourself relax and you fall apart as a consequence after so long of focusing on survival. For a while, Axe had not been very distraught about the idea of losing Earth. He would have not missed its towering cities, the denseness of its population shoved into possibly small cities. He would not miss its lakes or oceans. He might have missed its forests. But then years passed, and Axe caught more glimpses of this world and what it held, and eventually Axe found the idea of losing Earth, the planet, much more distressing than he thought he would. It had taken him much less time to grow attached to the people in this car. Mere weeks had passed before Axe was panicked about the idea of their deaths. His feelings for these humans had grown roots and spread over the years, even as things had started to fall apart. He feels a carousel, a battle bond, with all of them. They have experienced so much together, thrown together by chance. Now they have a chance to separate, and they had. Now that they are again together again, Axe knows they won't stay that way. They will separate again. Still, Axe hopes that they will continue to come together. He hopes, but there's also a word in his language that does not exist here. Kereshorn. 
It means the separation of those who are battle-bonded after the fight finally ended. Not through circumstance, but by choice. Being together is too painful, bringing back memories or tensions that they want to re retreat from or forget. Axe can picture them all, himself included, becoming Kershorn. It may have started already. He wouldn't blame any of them for it. Still, he hopes. It has been a solid hour of Fleetwood Mac. Fucking Fleetwood Mac. In rear view, in his rear view mirror, Axe's gaze drags towards Rachel. She's speaking with her eyes closed. Change the radio channel, she says. Marco grumbles something, but he does. He also keeps his eyes closed, hand reaching out and groping until he finds the radio. It switches to a singer telling the listener that they are an all-star. All that glitters is gold. Happy, Marco says, and then leans back into the chair. This is worse, Rachel tells him. I like this song, Tobias says. You have terrible taste, Rachel says after a beat. Tobias pauses. It's sketchy. It'll be over soon, Jake says. Axe watches the road. He knows it's not possible, but it seems to go on forever. Alrighty, chapter four. I kind of like that the author interrupted all of Axe's, like, deep and broody introspection with, like, Rachel just being like, ah, I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> I'm sorry. Alright, straight up to chapter four. The supermarket is mostly empty, which Cassie is thankful for. Not so much for herself, but for Rachel. Axe and Marco seem okay when they're out and about, but Tobias is shifty about crowds at the best of times and attracts weird looks from acting too much like a bird when he's in human morph. And then from what she's seen of Jake in the past day, he hides away in baggy clothes and moves stiffly whenever he thinks people are looking at him. Cassie assumes he's afraid of getting re recognized and having everything dragged out in front of him. Did you really do what they say you did? How do you live with yourself and the like? Which, according to Marco, has happened before. Rachel's on knees comes in fits and bursts, twitching away from another shopper as they pass and checking around her every ten seconds or, like, or so while she's expecting an attack from behind. Other than that, she just hunches it into her hoodie. Cassie takes a second to admire how she's still able to rock that hoodie even when she's in the midst of going of an ongoing psychotic break. Even covered in mud or blood or viscera, Rachel has always been able to look catwalk-worthy. Now, it seems it, it is no different. It's only when Rachel glances at her and turns it, it and it turns into a pinched look that Cassie realizes that she'd been smiling fondly at her. She forces her mouth into something less imposing and says, Pringles. Pringles? Rachel says after a moment, nodding. They start heading for the junk food aisle, and Rachel looks at the list scribbled on the back of her hand. What the hell does this even say? She tilts her hand towards Cassie, who motions for Rachel to stop. When she does, Cassie makes a move to take her hand, but aborts the motion halfway through and pockets her hands instead. Corn chips, I think. What flavor? Cassie squints. Marco's handwriting is really atrocious. Um, that new one? Onion something? Cod. Rachel drops her hand back to her side. Marco and his weird chip flavors. Come on. They continue towards the junk aisle. Cassie looks down the other aisles as they pass. International cuisine, magazines, tinned foods. 
Lately, she's been entertaining the idea of future her going gro grocery shopping by herself or with her classmates turned friends. It's a comforting notion, one that Cassie assumes will turn tedious very fast. She remembers having the same idea about doing her own washing when she was younger, weirdly enough. When she finally had to do it on her own, it barely took three weeks for it to become another boring chore to remember. Still, Cassie likes the idea of imagining herself in the future. For the last few years, she's been shying away from it, uncertain there would even be a next week, let alone a next year. But nowadays, she finds herself imagining moving out of home, decorating her first apartment, maybe getting a dog after med school finishes. Of those new overalls... Huh? Cassie blinks and looks down at them. Oh, yeah, I grew out of my old ones. Rachel makes a noise in the back of her throat. Finally, I've been waiting for you to get, replace the old pair for what, a year? It'd creak at the seams when you'd move. It was that small on you. Cassie smiles as they turn into the junk aisle. She's not quite sure what to say. Rachel hasn't been up for conversation, conversation ever since they got into Marco's van. She'd been silent for most of the trip to get Jake, and today had been more of the same, apart from a few moments. Okay. Rachel says as they come to a stop in front of the rows of chips. Onion, she trails off, mumbling the second word as she tries to read it on her hand. Whatever, she says, and starts looking over the chips. Cassie reaches up to get the nearest Pringles. She goes on her toes, but all she can do is prod at them with the very end of her middle finger. There's a sigh, and Rachel's in her space, standing close enough to brush elbows and reach up to get the Pringles can with ease. Here, she says still looking at the chip she, as she hands the can to Cassie. Thanks. Cassie holds the can against her stomach with both hands. She watches as Rachel curses quietly and then grabs the nearest chips as she can, that she can find that says onion on the label, then takes several chocolate bars that are loaded with caramel. For a second, Cassie can almost pretend they're in middle school again, that this is just before a sleepover. And in an hour, they'll be back at Rachel's house, and her sisters will be microwaving old takeout, and Rachel will do Cassie's nails and pinch her elbow, grinning, when Cassie messes them up by accident in record time. But then Cassie blinks, and Rachel is taller than she ever was in middle school. Her baby fat is gone, as well as her easy smile. The Rachel that painted Cassie's nails has slowly but surely been replaced by something whip-thin and dangerous, something that you, cut, you can cut yourself on. Cassie finds herself swallowing down a reflex of grief for the kid she used to be. Her and Rachel both. They were all, are, so young. Cassie forgets this sometimes, but there are moments she'll look in the mirror or see Jake on TV and think, God, we're children. We're still children. How the hell can that be? Cassie? What? Cassie's throat clicks. Rachel is looking at her warily. I'm fine, Cassie says. Let's... There's a crash off to the left. Far away, but not far away enough. Cassie's mind leaps to Dracon beams. They're sharp, impossible noise, and she acts on instinct. She grabs Rachel's wrist and drags her away from the shelves into the middle of the aisle, plastering her back against hers so they can have a better view of whoever or whatever it is. Is Cassie's breath is loud in the otherwise silent supermarket. She watches as a board employee, a teenage girl no older than them, walks by their aisle. She doesn't look at the, like the store just got broken into or like anyone's pulled an alien weapon. Rachel is a solid pressure against Cassie's back. She's also very still. Cassie turns around. Sorry, shit. 
I, I'm sorry. Cassie looks down at her. Her eyebrows are unplucked and lovely and drawn in together. She continues not to say anything until Cassie swears again. Then she says, Ah, uh, you good? Yeah, yes. Cassie pushes a strand of tight girls curls out of her own face. I'm good. Okay, Rachel says, dubious. She's still holding the chips and the chocolate bars. Cassie has dropped her Pringles can at the noise. Cassie watches Rachel bend down and take the can into the hand, not holding the chips and the chocolate. She hands the can back to Cassie wordlessly. Thanks. Cassie can't stop swallowing. Her throat is bone dry, despite having taken a long swig from Jake's water bottle less than an hour ago. We should, uh, go to the checkout. Can't keep everyone waiting for dinner. Right, Rachel says and falls into step beside Cassie after a few seconds of walking. At first, Cassie thinks they're going to drop it to hide under a veneer of we're fine, we're road tripping, we're normal, ha <laughs> ha. Then when they w they're walking away from the cashier with their chips, Rachel says, I thought you were the stable one out of all of us. Well, I'm Marco, but he was only ever a certain level of stable anyway. I'm stable, Cassie says. Even to her, it sounds flimsy. Rachel doesn't say anything, and this time, and this time she continues not saying it. When they get into the car and Marco jokingly asks if they had any trouble, Cassie eyes her own hands. But Rachel just tells Marco that his taste in chips is weird and throws the bag over the car seat at him. Cassie blows a thin stream of breath out and leans back against the seat. Her heart is still beating like a rabbit's and still hasn't calmed by the time they pull out of the parking lot. Tobias has never liked motels. They remind him too much of being shuffled from house to house, never sticking somewhere for long. As they draw closer to one, Tobias tries not to think about it beside him. Axe is still sulking, or the Axe version of sulking, which wouldn't be noticeable to someone who didn't spend the better part of three and a half years around him. You know why they didn't get, let you into the supermarket, Tobias reminds him. That was one instance, Axe says. He's morphed human to gorge himself on chocolate bars and is currently licking the remnants of one off his fingers. Two, come on, buddy. I was there for both of them. Don't lie to me. When Axe says nothing, Tobias says, It was a small supermarket anyway. They probably did have free samples. samples. Oh God, does Axe still get pissed about that? Says Marco from the driver's seat. He has one hand on the wheel and the other in a bag of chips. Jake's been eyeing both his hands and holding his own seatbelt with no concern for subtlety. Tobias says, Yeah. At the same time, Axe says, I was not angry, Marco snorts. Sure, Axe man. Tobias, when was this second time? I only remember one. Yeah, the second time happened a couple months ago. There was a basket of bread beets and a friend got here, got carried away and started opening the actual bags of bread. You know, the ones you're supposed to buy first. I am still learning about Earth's rules. It is an ongoing process. And you all have very different cultures and practices depending on. You've stuck pretty exclusively to the Western cultures and ideals, Tobias says. Don't use that as an excuse. Axe stays silent, but that might just be due to his continued sucking of his fingers. The road! Jake snaps. Got it, Marco says, gaze snapping from the rearview mirror to the road. 
whereas he stopped in the middle of it to turn into a moat into the motel. He adds, There are no cars. Chill. And he starts to turn. Tobias looks towards Axe, who is leaning with the car as it turns and is still sucking his fingers. Maybe Tobias will have to tell him to not do things that could distract Marco while he's driving. <laughs> or more likely, he'll tell Marco to pull his head out of his butt and quit leering at Axe while he's op operating a vehicle with all of them inside of it. Tobias holds harder to the seat with his talons and ruffles his feathers. Definitely the second one, he decides. So how many rooms are we getting? Rachel asks. Uh, Marco pauses as he pulls into a park. When the car rumbles into silence and he's pulling the parking brake back, he says, I don't know, however many beds we need, and um, we can get a bed for Axe and then just pull the bedding into a, a tub. Tobias, I can sleep in a drawer, Tobias says. He doesn't look at Rachel when he says it, but he can feel her gaze on his feathers. He wonders if, if she's also thinking about the cold winter nights, storms he's weathered by coming into Rachel's room and settling into the open drawer she'd lined with old sleepwear. Don't bother getting a bed. Never cross my mind, Marco replies. Uh, how about you circle around and when you see us get into a room, just come down and peck on the window until one of us lets you in. Yeah? Sounds good. Let me know. Tobias waits until Cassie winds down the window. Then he hops over to it, perching for a moment before taking flight. Being in the sky again is a relief after so much time in the van even if the air feels stale and there's barely a fresh breath of wind. Tobias flaps lazily upwards, lifting in circles around the tiny town they've parked in. He stakes out the place, taking note of good vantage points of if a fight breaks out, good spots to take cover. Just because it was easier, he morphed human hours ago to eat what had been the last of their snacks. Marco had made a joke about letting Tobias know about the next roadkill he spots and no one had laughed. Because they all knew Tobias was considering it, it'd be cheaper for one. Roadkill was usually cold and therefore kind of gross, but Tobias wouldn't turn up his beak at it. He didn't like eating in front of people, as a hawk anyway, but it was a small discomfort rather than something that was used to make him take off and have a crisis about it. As he coasts in slow circles, Tobias thinks about the list. Where the hell had Marco gotten half of those ideas? Since when did he have an obsession with the beach? And fireworks. Tobias had sat with Marco sometimes when he watched his endless loop of reruns with Axe, and very few of them had the kind of stuff on that list. Why did Marco's automatic idea of teenagehood come up with those things? When Tobias thinks of the teenagehood he wishes he had, the, bench, the beach doesn't make an appearance. Drinking does, but only as an experiment. He'd had a lot of opportunities to drink at his aunt and uncle's, if he wanted to sneak some booze, but he never did. Never really wanted to after seeing what it did to them. When Tobias thinks of what his teenagehood should have been like, he, he thinks of school mainly. He used to entertain fantasies that involved getting into a low-rate college, and he, he didn't care what it was if it was out of town or better yet, out of state. He'd apply for loans. He'd do his best and maybe drop out. He wouldn't be surprised, but he'd try first. Tobias flies up until the motel would be a speck if he had human eyes. As it is, he can still see the yellow flash of Rachel's hair as she walks out onto the second floor balcony that sticks out around the building. Up here, in control and safe, Tobias lets himself feel his chest twist. Rachel goddamn Berenson. 
From behind her, Jake emerges through the door, and then the rest of the group, including Axe and Human Morph. Tobias watches him follow the girls into a motel room and sees Marco and Jake at the next one over. On the balcony, Marco puts up one hand and shovers shade his eyes. With his other hand, he motions towards Tobias. His mouth moves around what Tobias assumes is a version of, Get down here, bird boy. Tobias angles himself downwards and flaps until he's close enough to come to a soft landing on Marco's shoulder. The doorway isn't wide enough for a pigeon's wingspan, let alone Tobias's. Marco walks inside, and Tobias flaps in short bursts over to a desk that has an old TV sitting on it. Nice digs, Marco says, putting his hands on his hips. Uh, we looking at the same room, Jake says. Also, dibs on that bed. Marco grins at him. Because I'm a kind and gallant person, I'm going to let you have that. Yeah, because I dipsed it, Jake says, sitting down on the bed and bouncing lightly to test its springs. Tobias eyes him. Jake had been drifting in and out of something distant and tense into something slightly more like how he was in the first couple years of the war. Have the first has the have the past few months have been good for him? They couldn't have been great with the upcoming trial and being kept on a military base, but surely he would have gotten a lot of downtime. What does Jake even do with that nowadays? Basketball is the first thing that comes to mind. It makes him huff a laugh in thought speak. The boys look up at him. Eats nothing, Tobias tells him. He scratches under his wing with his beak and then something occurs to him. He lowers his wings and looks into the bathroom where Marco's pulling at the shower curtain trying to figure out the design. Hey, who's paying for all of this? Me, Marco says. Kind and gallant, remember? Yeah, yeah, Tobias says. Marco, I paid for gas earlier today, right? And it hadn't been a small amount. You remember Cassie offering to chip in when Marco had waved her off. Since when have you had money? Since I've been going on the talk shows, Marco says distractedly. He squints down at the shower curtain. What the hell is clowns? No. Rabbits with weird hats. No. You went on the talk shows? Marco finally looks up at him. What? Yeah, like five months ago. When, where you've... Oh, right. He says, making a face like Tobias had been giving him a flat look. Woods. Yeah. But you had a TV. Axe had a TV in his scoop. We mostly watch videos. Ah, Marco almost looks disappointed. So Axe didn't... He stops and runs a hand through his hair. Yeah, I went on a couple talk shows. Or I did too. I also did an interview that isn't out yet. What did you talk about? Marco laughs. It's not a good laugh. What do you think? Fair enough. Tobias suddenly wants to know. Still. What kind of questions did he get asked? How did he respond? There's so much ground to cover in the war. So much about the Animorphs and what they did, why they did it, how they cooked. So much about their families, their backgrounds, what they'll do next. Did Marco answer anything he got asked? Surely not. It's Marco, after all. Why do you agree to it? Tobias asks. Marco doesn't even blink. Money, mostly. And publicity. They kind of go hand in hand. You're going to keep doing stuff like that? Yeah, he clears his throat. 
Actually, I was thinking about getting into showbiz. Shouldn't be easy now. Seriously? He remembers Marco making some jokes about it over the years. But really? Why not? Marco says and averts his gaze to the wall of the bathroom. Gotta make a living. He continues and turns back to the shower curtain. Either he's actually interested in finding out what the smudges on it are, or he's feigning it. With Marco, it could easily be both. Tobias looks at Jake, who's been suspiciously silent for this. Jake is leaning back against his bed, palms braced against the mattress. He's looking out the window. Tobias switches to private thought speak. Have you watched them? Jake blinks. The first one, yeah. What did they ask? What did Marco say? Just stuff about the war, about animals. Ah, uh, the host, the talk show host. She put a lot of emphasis on us being kid soldiers. She made us seem sympathetic. Jake shifts his shoulders and Tobias thinks about the weight on them. Has it gone away? Will Jake have to cope with the phantom weight of it for the rest of his life? Jake continues. I think Marco is trying to sway public opinion towards me for the trial. Like, that's not the only reason he's doing he's doing it for himself. But I think he's also trying to help me. Of course he is, Tobias says. That sounds exactly like Marco. Jake's gaze goes far away. He's probably watching the near non-existent clouds go by. Tobias looks at him with a precision impossible to humans. Stray hairs, loose fibers on his clothes. He can remember very clearly. Jake looking over a video feed at Rachel when they thought she was dead. Blood had been oozing into her eyelashes and her lips had been parted. Even after they found Rachel was alive, Tobias hadn't looked Jake in the face for a long time after that. They had hardly spoken before this road trip. From the bathroom, Marco called out that he was going to use the shower and anyone else who wanted to use the bathroom had better speak up now. We are good, Jake calls back. Then he lies on his back against the mattress. Tobias watches his chest rise and fall for ten seconds. Then he flies over to the bedside table that separates Jake's and Marco's beds. Jake doesn't acknowledge him and Tobias doesn't do anything but stand. The shower turns on and the sound of running water comes muted through the thin walls. Tobias thinks about the wall on the other side of the room, the one with Rachel on the other side. He thinks about the wall with the window on it. in it. He looks towards it, out the glass into the sky. Jake rests his eyes until he's in real danger of falling asleep. When he opens his eyes, drowsy, the sky has darkened slightly and Marco still is in the bed, in the bed next to him. Jake twists his head. The bathroom door is still closed and he hasn't heard any movement since the water shut off. Marco? A clatter and a tiny swear. Then, I was concentrating, dude. Sorry. Sorry, Jake says and listens to another swear. Need help with something? There's a pause, then a small click and a thud, and the bathroom door leans open slightly. Jake pushes himself to his feet and walks by Tobias, around Marco's bed and into the bathroom. It's very small. The bath is closed to the, is close enough to the door that Marco, who's sitting on the edge of the tub, could have leaned over and opened the door with one hand and then kicked it open. When he registers Marco fully, he stops. Marco is wearing a binder and boxers and his hair is, in, is damp, sticking to his face. On the sink, where there are plastic wrappings and some sterile pads. 
and in his hand Marco has a very small needle filled with clear liquid. Hi, Marco says. Hi, Marco says dryly. Sorry. Jake stares. He closes the bathroom door behind him. What's, what's up, buddy? Marco gives him a squinty look. Shit, I didn't tell you the specifics of any of this, did I? Jake shakes his head. He hadn't even known Marco was, what did they call it? Transitioning, until he showed up at the military base with Rachel. They'd hardly talked since the war ended, and Marco hadn't mentioned this in the phone calls he tried to make weekly, but usually this ended up being by month but usually ended up being bi-monthly or even monthly. Marco sighs. Okay, this, he holds up the tiny needle. Testosterone. It's supposed to go in me, but I can't, um, I can't get the right angle. His voice changes slightly at the last minute, though his gaze remains steady. Unlike his hands, which Jake focuses on them, Marco's fingers, both on the hand holding the needle and the one around the lip of the tub, have minute tremors running through them. Marco squeezes the hand he has against the tub hard enough to that it's too tight to shake. He he'll, he yeah, he holds out the needle. Oh, Jake says. He takes it gingerly by the non-pointy end. That at least he knows. Uh, I'm gonna talk you through it. Calm down. No, I I know. Jake eyes it anyway. Hey, if I mess this up, what'll happen? You won't mess it up. Yeah, but what if I do? You won't, Marco says. Besides, I've done all the hard stuff, checking for bubbles and whatever, which is a big no-no. You just have to stick the needle into you. Chill, Marco says, and pushes one leg of his boxers up a bit so more thigh is exposed. He shows Jake how to hold the needle, then Marco pinches a thick se section of his own thigh skin. His hands are still shaking, just barely, when Jake pushes the needle in, all the way in, like Marco tells him to, he slowly injects it and waits several seconds. Now take it out, Marco says. Jake does, just as slow. He's not sure if he's supposed to do it slow. He has a vague memory of getting shots at a nurse's office when he was a kid, having the needle in his arm and wishing they'd take it out faster. Marco motions towards the sink. Hand me one of those swabs and a band-aid. Jake does, even though the bathroom is small enough and everything is close enough together that Marco could have easily leaned over and got one himself. Jake watches as Marco wipes at the bead of blood with the antiseptic swab, then smooths over a band-aid and over the spot with unsteady hands. Thanks, Marco says. He smiles up at Jake, who is struck by how tired Marco suddenly looks. You okay? Jake asks. Marco wiggles his leg. It's a jab. It'll heal. We've had way worse. Then he grins, and it just looks as weary. We've had worse, Jake thinks. He hasn't had a limb cut off in months. It's been years since he went more than a few weeks without getting something cut off him, whether it be paws or flippers or otherwise. He has a vivid memory of a Marco, early on in the war, getting sliced nearly in half in Dolphin Morph just after they met Axe for the first time. God feels like so long ago. Where the hell would any of them be in three years? Maybe Jake would be in prison. How long would they keep him in there, anyway? It feels like what he did. It's well worth a life sentence. He still thinks it's necessary, but he wouldn't blame the jury if they put him away for it. Once upon a time, he'd probably think it was the right thing to do. 
Um, nowadays, he doesn't get that luxury. One of the younger people back at the base had asked him in the first few days of his stay if he got to do it over again, would he make the same choice? Jake had replied without thinking, yes, I would. They looked at him with something that wasn't quite horror, but was some mi pity mixed in, too. We've had worse, Jake agrees when he realizes seconds have passed with neither of them speaking. When he looks at Marco again, the grin has dimmed. Whatever it is, Marco says, thinking about something else instead, okay? Jake glances at Marco's hands. They're still, but as Jake watches, they twitch into a tremor. And Marco's hand curls into steady fists. Jake stands. His throat clicks. What time should we leave tomorrow? Marco considers, then says, Before noon, but not too much before. We should have breakfast in town first, and at a diner or something. I've always wanted to do that during a road trip, you know? Yeah, Jake says. He stands back and waits for Marco to stand, and then leaves into the other room while Marco is still pulling on his wet clothes. Tobias says nothing as Jake passes him. He probably heard the whole thing. Jake lies down on the top of his bed and wonders if he had anything solid that he's always wanted to do that he still do now, like Marco has. He has vague ideas in the past, but they feel like a child's dreams. Basketball seems laughable now. But they were the usual expectations he found hoping for, even looking forward to. As a kid, looking forward to something that seemed a lot so long away, it would ne yeah, never arrive. College, maybe. A job, a wife, a family. One day, far off. They feel impossibly out of reach now, even more than they did when he was 13 and prepubescent. He closes his eyes. What would he do once the trial was over? What kind of life could he po possibly work towards? He thinks about Rachel when he thought he'd sent her to her death, how vacant her face had looked on the screen. He thinks about Cassie and their one kiss, back when they were still growing into body puberty, in the body puberty had given them. He thinks about Marco on his talk show, smiling wide and laughing like he belonged there, witty and biting and putting on just enough of a show. Tobias looking at him after Rachel died. Tom, Jake squeezes his eyes, lids shut tighter. <sighs> Sorry. Jake squeezes his eyelids shut tighter. Not that, he tells himself. Beside him, the other bed, bed creaks with weight. Marco, Jake thinks, remembering, think of something else. So Jake tries to think of smaller things. Marco has this road trip. What does Jake want to do? No, still do too big. He has two-ish years left of teenagehood. What does he want to make of them? Well, I don't want to spend them in prison is his first thought. Okay, assume he doesn't go to prison. What then? His parents said they'd have them living with him once. They'd be living with him when he gets out. They were very careful to say when. And before Jake had been taken to the military base, they'd have a week or so living at a distant relative's house. They'd acted a lot like ghosts, and it seemed to hurt them to talk to Jake or even look at him sometimes. Jake doesn't want that to be his life. Okay, so he doesn't want to live with his parents. He could get his own place. Moving out is an important stage of the teenage experience. The late teenage experience, but still. He'd need income, so he could get a job. But then people would recognize him. 
maybe something he doesn't have to interact with people or just see people. Maybe he get could get a phone job. The idea depresses him even as he, as he starts to entertain it. Maybe Marco will let me live in his basement, Jake thinks. His mouth twitches. Just get through the road trip, he tells himself. Then the trial, and then, depending on how that goes, then start to deal with the rest of your life. It sounds simple. Jake knows it won't be. But he's been operating on plans that have turned into make, up, make it up as you go for three years now. And those have had much higher stakes. Halfway through her shower, Rachel realizes that she should probably wash her hair. She lifts a wet hand from her shoulder after she finishes lathering, rinsing, and repeating. She should probably get it cut, too. It's been filled with split ends since she thinks about it. Months before the war ended, definitely. By then, she had been past caring about things like hair care. Past caring about a lot of things, actually. She twists both the knobs to the shower off, because this is one of those weird ones that have two taps instead of one, so adjusting the temperature is a struggle, and steps out of the bath, because this is a bath-shower hybrid, which makes the showering experience all worse all around. She dries off and starts getting into her PJs. As she buttons her flannel top, she pauses and brushes her fingers against the space between her breasts, then her collarbone. The controller and polar bear morph had left scars, ribbed ones from the bottom of her neck just to below where her breasts moved into the stomach. There had been scars from before the war that had never gone away no matter how much she morphed, but she never gotten any scars in human form that stuck until these very last ones. The mirror is foggy and she kept it that way, keeps it that way. She doesn't want to see them, she's already got them memorized. Anyway, she could look down at any time of the day and see them sitting under her clothes. They're still slightly pink, healed but not faded by any means. Her fingertips press into it, then her whole hand. The scars sit thick and rough against her palm. You fight well, human. Rachel closes her eyes and breathes in. Under her hand, her chest expands outwards. There's a knock on the door that jolts her eyes open. Watts! Cassie's voice comes through. Axe wants to know if you wanted something from the vending machine. We already ate. I know, he's snacky. Rachel mouths snacky and bends down to get her towel. She twists it around in her hair and props it on top of her head. Ah, uh, raisinets. There's a pause. You hate raisinets. Does she? Rachel knows she used to hate them but she's developed a taste for them in the past year or so. She and Cassie were de definitely still talking regularly when Ra Rachel started liking raisinets. Rachel assumes that she'd realized she liked them and then didn't think about telling them anyone. Why did Rachel's su changed candy preference matter when they're in the middle of a giant galactic war? Well, I don't anymore, she says, heading to the bathroom door and opening it. They're an acquired taste, apparently. Cassie waves her hand at the volume of steam that wafts out of the bathroom. She steps back and says to Axe, Um, raisinets. Still in human morph, Axe nods. Yes. So, fanyans and raisin, aisin, aisinets, and whatever you can get your hands on for the couple bucks of leftover, Cassie nods.
axe leaves and Rachel watches his legs as he closes the door be- front door behind him. How does he not fall over more when he's human? He falls over less, Cassie says. She goes over to sit on her bed, then bends down and starts pulling books out of her bag. Then she settles to sit against the wall and opens one. Rachel sits in her own bed in the exact same position. She looks over and tries to squint at the titles of the books, which look to be too thick for to be fun. They also look a lot like textbooks, with long, complicated-looking titles. Are you back in school? Not yet, comes Cassie's answer. Starts out quiet, like she's not sure if she's allowed to say it, but finishes with force. Oh, let me try that again. Not yet. There we go. Rachel nods from Cassie's face. Her gaze is still on the book, but her eyes aren't moving over the words. She isn't sure if she should continue. Rachel doesn't know if she wants her to. They sit in a silence that could be a distant cousin of comfortable until Axe returns, wobbling a bit as he closes the door behind him. They both watch him as he writes himself and comes over to hand them their candy. Alright, that's where I'm going to stop tonight for this recording. I mean, um, wanted to stop at an okay stopping point, but also get past an hour. Um, two notes. So, I guess this author must be British because they use the British spelling for at least flavor. Which is cool, but whatever. Um... And also, so my friend is, um, a tra- he's almost done transition, transitioning actually, but he's a, he's a male, um, and funny enough, I read this story a while ago, like I guess a couple of months ago, but recently he started complaining about how he has to stab himself like a kajillion times before he can get his testosterone in. So since my both of my parents work in the medical field, I decided to ask them um, how what's, where's the best place to stick that kind of thing in because my friend doesn't have a lot of fat on his body because he just doesn't like eating very much, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a foodie. <laughs> um, I can't relate. Anyway. anyway, so he doesn't have a lot of fat on his body besides his butt and his thighs. So... And it's hard for him to do his butt because he's trying to learn how to do it himself. Because, you know, we're late teenagers and we got to learn how to be independent and whatever. Um, and his arm is just, I mean, it's not bony, but, you know, it's, I don't know, not bony. But he's not average either, I guess. Um, and he always sticks it right into his thigh, and he was having trouble finding a good spot. So, my dad actually gave me the exact same advice, um, that Marco does. Um, you know, like, right right into the top of your thigh. So, my dad made sure to point out that you should do, there's like a vein, I think, that's what he said. That runs parallel to your thigh bone, like right on top of it. So, um, that's what you should aim for to any, you know, listeners, I guess. I don't know. Um, but, um, I guess Anthony has a pretty steady hand because he's taking bio, um, anatomy and stuff. So, you know, dissections. And he also, uh, plays 
uh, I mean, you know, he's musical. I honestly don't know what instrument he plays. I'm kind of feeling like a bad friend right now. <laughs> but um, he has dexterity. There we are. Um, so I guess he didn't have the whole shaking, trembling fingers then. But then again, I, I bet Anthony's been doing this for years versus Marco's been doing it for months. And Anthony doesn't have that kind of PTSD. Um, anyway, so um, Anthony now happily likes to report to me that, Yay, I only had to stab myself once this time. I think it's hilarious. Um, so, yeah. I'm going to finish this chapter in the next recording. I'm talking for a long time, I know, I'm sorry. But I'm going to finish this chapter in the rec next recording because my tongue is getting tied and it's tired, but I'm... Um, and I can't handle all the voices and I'm tired as well as my tongue being tired. And I, like I said, I don't really like recordings going over an hour. So, yeah. Good night.